This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. So welcome everybody to uh, Wednesday, the, uh, the day before Shavuot over here in, uh, in Jerusalem and very soon for the rest of the world, for our Christchurch Evening Bible Study on the last words of Moses as we look at uh, Moses' speech in Deuteronomy, the man who first started his career by saying, I don't know how to talk, ends up giving the longest monologue in the entire Bible by the end of his career. So somewhere along the line, he's done well. And we've been looking at what he's been including and what he hasn't been including as he uh, makes a comment on on the Torah to the people of Israel as they are about to enter the promised land. And we'll begin, as is a, a good and ancient Christian tradition, we'll begin in prayer as we gather in the name of the Lord. Neville? Okay. Yes, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are above all, Lord, that you are in control, that you understand our situation. And Father, we ask that you would be with us and amongst us. Guide us by your spirit and honor us by your presence, Lord, that we may understand new insights into your law and praise your name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so going on from last week, we're in chapter 9, and I think we kind of got through the first 14 verses. So uh, I'll read a summary of our discussion and some of the, the high points from last week. So Deuteronomy chapter 9, roughly verses 1 to 14. Fear of the coming battle and conquest of Canaan could pose a problem for the people of Israel. For this has posed a problem 40 years ago. Memory is important as the past can affect the the present. And there is a competing memory of failure, that is with the 10 spies, within the national memory of Israel. So the saying is, we've done this before and we failed, so what's changed now? Memory, both national and individual, is therefore selective for a reason. We all choose to remember certain things of our past for a reason, not everything. Thus, when retelling the sacred history within the Torah, Moses does not include everything. Instead, in chapters 8 and 9, Moses focuses on three things. He focuses on the exodus from Egypt, Israel's lack of righteousness and constant rebellion, and the sin of the golden calf. So those are three things out of being selective of what he wants to to help Israel remember. Moses once again tells the people that as they cross the Jordan, they will face a strong and defiant enemy. Archaeologically, we find strong fortifications in Israel during the early Bronze Age period, and the example we we looked at was Tel Arad, that confirmed Moses' description of Canaan's defences. The giant peoples, known as the Anakim, remain in the land, and we have evidence all over the world uh, and across cultures, both physical evidence and literary evidence, of the existence of giants. So bones, stories, pictures, and buildings. Note that even though God is going to fight for and with Israel, he does not make the adventure easy. 
it's going to be a tough battle. Compare that with many people in the church today believing that faith will make all things easy. Some opponents that Israel will face will fall quickly, Jericho, for example. Others, however, will not fall so fast. And God is still in control. Faith makes all things possible, not easy. Moses reminds the people that the land that they are about to possess is an inheritance to Israel, but not because of anything they have done to deserve it. In particular, it is not an inheritance based on any righteousness of the Jewish people. Victory and success can too often bring a feeling of self-justification and self-righteousness. That is, the notion, I am being blessed by God, therefore I obviously deserve it, because of my faith or my actions. While it is true that on one hand, you do reap what you sow, and there are consequences, both good and bad, to our actions, on the other hand, this is not always true. For example, what did Israel do to deserve redemption from Egypt? And in the case of the conquest of Canaan, Moses declares to Israel that success does not stem from any righteousness that Israel might possess. Rather, it is that the current inhabitants have been supremely wicked. Their removal is a result of how bad that they have been, here referring to human sacrifice, idolatry, and perverse sexual immorality. God has his eye on all nations of the world, and he pays attention to their behavior. Moses' first fast of 40 days was rewarded with the words of God from the finger of God. This was followed by a second fast, after which he pleaded for mercy. Fasts do appear to receive a reward. These extravagant fasting claims intrigued the ancient interpreters. Humans cannot survive without water for 40 days. The rabbis claim that Moses was elevated to the status of the angels and was sustained in the same fashion directly by God. And this is relevant in light of Jesus' fasting in the desert, where in the Gospel of Mark, 1 verse 13, he notes, He was with wild animals, and the angels attended him. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to the disciples, I have food that you know nothing about. That's John 4.32. While Moses was on Sinai, mostly called Choreb in the Bible, the people rebelled and they turned to idolatry. At this point, the people no longer remain the people of God. God declares them to be the people of Moses and stiff-necked or stubborn. Idolatry remains an immediate danger and reveals how easy it is to leave the hand of God and to come to a place where God will not call them his people. That is a very dangerous place indeed. Okay. That's uh, our discussions from, from my notes from, the last, uh, from last week. All right, so what we'll do is um, we'll read from, well, I'll read from verse 11 to the end, uh, just to keep giving a bit of the, the background. Okay, so Deuteronomy 9, verse 11. At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, go down from here at once, because your people whom you have brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made an idol 
for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone, so I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they are. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and I threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. And then, once again, I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread, and I drank no water, because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight, and so arousing his anger. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me, and the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. But at that time, I prayed for Aaron too. Also, I took that sinful thing of yours, the calf that you had made, and I burned it in fire. And then I crushed it and ground it to powder, as fine as dust, and I threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. You also made the Lord angry at Terovah, at Massah, and at Kivot Hatavah. And when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh Barnea, he said, Go up and take possession of the land I've given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him. And you have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. I lay prostate, prostrate sorry, before the Lord these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he had promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out, he, he brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. But they are your people, your inheritance, and you brought them out by your great power and your outstretched arm. All right. So I know that's the second time we've read that now, but is there anything there that, uh, uh, again, strikes you? Um, something that you might have noticed or have not noticed? The timing of coming down and going back up prostrate. Yeah, it's a little different from what's in Exodus. That's definitely sure. <coughs> I always find sorry. I always find that um, <laughs> God says, you know, Moses, your people have uh, have sinned, and then at the end of Moses' prayer, he pushes all the way back. No, no, your people, who you brought out, you know, sort of. Uh, and I noticed that. Um, what an interesting way to talk to God. I noticed uh, 25, 26 at the end. Your people, your inheritance, your heritage, who you have received, who you have redeemed, and at the end, your people and your heritage, who you have uh, you have brought out. And it just reminds me of the uh, 
everlasting covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, 7. He says, you know, it's an everlasting, it's Brit Olam, right? For yep. With your, you know, heritage and your people and your offspring. So he's claiming that to, to the Lord, just reminding him. <laughs> yeah, as though he would forget. Interesting. Particularly like the uh, verse 28 where he, Moses gives his reason that uh, why the Lord cannot do what he's just threatened to do. Yeah. I think we'll, we'll just talk about it when we get there, but it, I th- it's an immensely powerful reason. Yeah. Say, oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah. 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 This is, a, this is I, I, I said it last week, and I'll say it again. It is not often that we get prayers of our heroes recorded in the Bible. We know that they pray. We know that they talk to God. Um, and it's very rare that we actually get uh, a prayer listed down. And um, so it's always interesting to see how they prayed, what they prayed, and, uh, and the effect of their prayers. And then to look and think and dwell perhaps on um, uh, the, the prayers we pray. Verse 24, Aaron. Yeah. That's a very interesting statement. It means that... Uh, Despite their rebelliousness, the Lord God stuck with them. Yes, yes. So they were rebellious for 40 years in the desert, and what did God do every day? Which is an amazing act of love, isn't it? Because it's not, we would never do such a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we, when someone's, someone uh, offends us, we would, if, if we're polite, we would just walk away. But God doesn't do that. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a, it's a good, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting statement. Okay, so let's ha- have a, a closer look at, um, at, at this. So we've got um, in verse 11, we've got a, a, an ending of 40 days and 40 nights. The, that's when God gives him the, uh, the tablets, uh, the, the stone tablets, and on them are written the covenant. So not necessarily just ten commandments, ten but, but, but more. <clears throat> And then uh, in verse 12, we get that uh, the Lord told me, go down from here at once because your people have brought you out of Egypt and they have become corrupt. And, uh, and, and uh, they have turned around and they have made uh, an idol, uh, a masecha, some sort of uh, um, Different translations will say different things probably. Okay, so at the end of 40 days, at the end of 40 nights, God gives Moses these tablets. So what day of the calendar is that? You all know it. Um, is it not painful? Yes, it is. It's tomorrow, okay. <laughs> tomorrow is Erev Shavuot. And the tradition is, of course, on Erosho Award, God comes down and gives the, the, the Ten Commandments. And so um, that whole idea that uh, you find in Exodus 19, where uh, in Exodus 19 it says that after a couple of months after leaving um, Egypt, so it was Passover, it says on that day, doesn't tell you what day, just says that day that they appeared to the mountain. Well, that day in, uh, if you go into um, Hebrew, like the hahag, what is the, fe- the feast? It's, it's, it's Pentecost. 
And uh, the, so very quickly the tradition came that Pentecost is the giving of the Torah. So this occurs around this time as of right now. Hence, uh, our little mountain figure I thought would be uh, appropriate. Okay. It doesn't so why, why does the Jewish calendar use... Um, so the, the calendar that I use, it's always the first day after the Shabbat. After like the 49th Shabbat, right? That would so be, that would be Sunday. That's um, so, that's more of an Essene calendar. That one, the one that you're using there. The, the um, no, no, it's not the Essene no, calendar. No, but no, my no. question is, why why did the Hillel calendar has it on a on a Friday, on a Thursday, Friday? You said right. It's going to change. It's going to change all the time because of the moon. But what okay. I find, this is interesting. Yeah. If you read Leviticus twenty three really carefully you'll see that what is specified is that you celebrate the Feast of the First Fruits, so that's the First Fruits of the barley right. Harvest, on the day after the Sabbath, after the Passover. And in that contents, the Sabbath can only be the weekly Sabbath. So the Lord is saying that in perpetuity, you shall celebrate the Feast of First Fruits on the that's Sunday of the week of unleavened bread. Yes. And then, by definition, Shavuot is in lockstep, seven weeks later, which therefore mean it will all, the Lord always intended it to be celebrated on a Sunday, the day after the Sabbath. Yeah. Yes. Now, most people uh, uh, disagree with, I mean, you know, the, this is one area where, I don't know, for some reason they just couldn't manage to read and understand what Leviticus 23 said. And as I understand it, it's the Sadducees who actually practiced or took, took the view that I've just described. And I think that's about the only point that I agree on the, with the Sadducees. On. Yeah, Essenes did too. The Essene calendar made sure it was also on a Sunday. But, but I wonder whether that was a I thought that was a Sunday and the week after uh, the week of unleavened yeah. bread. Yeah, I you might be right. right. Yeah. But it's amazing because that allows for Jesus' resurrection to be the first fruits rising the first day of the week. Yes, yes. it does. Yeah, it is. So it's just the Bible is just perfect. Yeah, it is. Right. So Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Exactly. And then you go and into John. Funny, and it says, you know, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away. So it's all perfectly connected. It's amazing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And on um, the, the day coming up, then we have, which is another first fruits festival, it's the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And this is then the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, the first fruits of the church yep. are born on that day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We should make a video on this. This would be good. Mm -hmm. so, sure. Yeah, they will all rehearse our lines and we'll record it for, for prosperity. As <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 let me just um, come in there on the, I think just like um, we mentioned it, it's um, because of the, the interpretation of Leviticus 23, the day after the Shabbat has been a very big contention amongst them. Um, even among Jewish scholars for a while. And yep. that's, that's necessitated the different dates. Um, I kind of, from, from my own point of view, from studying it, I kind of understand it as the day after the Shabbat. The day after the Shabbat referring to the Feast of Unleavened Bread because after the Passover, the next day is Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then the day after the Shabbat will be the day that will be the 16th of um, Nisan. 
and which um, most people kind of follow. But of course, other people think that it's um, it's um, after the weekly Shabbat, and which uh, for me, if it's going to be after the weekly Shabbat, then um, that means we're going to be having the same day, um, having the Passover the same day each year. We're going to have, I mean, so we're going to be having the the Shavuot the same day each year. Because if it's going to fall on the day after the Shabbat, that means on the Sunday, that means every 50 days we're going to fall on the Sunday. And um, the, uh, which, which does not really follow for me. Um, but of course, it's still open to very big arguments here. Oh, yeah. yeah it's, okay. Uh, I'd just like to point out that when you read Leviticus 23 carefully, you will see it, when it uses the words Shabbat, and then in the next verse, it says, now count off seven Shabbats. And therefore, it must be, by all possible methods of interpretation, it must be the weekly Sabbath, not the high holiday of the beginning of Passover. Yeah. Uh, the, there is absolutely no way we're going to be able to come to a consensus. Unless, of course, <laughs> unless of course we, we invoke the Holy Spirit and create a miracle <laughs> that he only speaks on, this, on Zoom and not to his people for the last... Uh, 3,000 years. Uh, um, but it is interesting that at the time of Yeshua, at the time of Jesus, there were multiple calendars and there were multiple groups that followed multiple calendars and they still do to this day. Right? And so, uh, interesting. But for all intensive purposes, tomorrow in Israel is um, Shavuot. <laughs> so what's the good news about all this? We get Shavuot starting Thursday night all the way through Sunday. Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> yeah. it's a special it's three days of party, man. It's Shabbat, 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 bring it on. Okay, all right. So, forty days, forty nights. Why is the number forty important? What? What? Give, give me a couple of forties, guys. A couple of forties. Uh, yeah. The two. The number forty. Is, uh, is the number of maturity. Um, um, the Lord prepared the children of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness so that they can uh, move into the promised land. Um, we also have um, Yeshua preparing for his ministry, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, we also have um, um, many other fasting that happened on the 40th day also. They happened on the 40 days and um, uh, the 40 days we stand for maturity. Okay. 40 days, 40 days in the womb. That's 40 weeks uh, as a child is in the womb. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So here's, here's a few from the Bible. You just, you just, I just did a little Google thing the other day. Whoa, sorry about that. Is that you? <laughs> okay. So here's a, here's a couple of numbers of, of, uh, of 40. Okay. The rains fell in Noah's day for 40 days and 40 nights. Okay. You, uh, Israel eats manna for 40 years. Uh, the spies searched the land of Canaan for 40 days. In Deuteronomy, you get 40 lashes was the maximum penalty for whipping. Okay. Uh, God allowed the land to rest for 40 years in Judges. Uh, Eli judged Israel for 40 years. Goliath presented himself to Israel and taunted the Lord for 40 days. Saul, David, and King Solomon all reigned for 40 years. 
Um, Elijah ate one meal and it sustained him for 40 days. Um, Ezekiel, in his prophecy, bore the iniquity of, Israel, of Judah for 40 days. In Ezekiel, Egypt is to be laid desolate for 40 years after the war. God gave Nineveh 40 days to repent. And so um, you have a look at these and uh, Chabad have a little uh, mantra on their website. 40 is associated with testing, endurance, hardship, and overcoming in order to become more spiritual, receive a blessing, or get a reward of a divine answer, or getting or knowing the will of the Lord. Uh, and so you have the 40-day the um, fast and of, of Moses as he's preparing to receive something very special from the Lord, and it's a test of endurance, um, even though the Lord was also sustaining him during that, that time period. Okay. Um, all right. So in verse 12, uh, the Lord, this is where the Lord changes the um, personal pronouns. You know, go down, leave, because your people who've been brought out of Egypt have become corrupt, and they have made this idol, which uh, sometimes gets called um, uh, a molten image. And the, the, the word there is... Uh, can mean that, masecha, uh, can also mean some sort of covering. The idolatry hides the truth, right? The, it, it creates something in front that you see, that it covers, but it's, it's, it itself is false and it's hiding, it's hiding um, the truth from people. You don't have the word arise in that verse? Uh, in... In Hebrew, what does it say? I'm not quite sure. I'm reading an NIV, which doesn't always do okay. justice. Yeah, get, get up. Yeah, so it's get up, get down. Get up, get down. Yeah. <laughs> and the Lord said to me, now this is an interesting one, and I want you to comment on this one. Now think carefully about what the Lord is saying. The Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. But what does that imply any ideas god says i have seen these people okay i've seen the people and they are a stiff neck so you're asking what the stiff neck means no no watching them so god looked god looked and what did he do he came to a conclusion. But he came down and looked. Okay. Think, think, try and think a little bit more um, wide picture. Like in the, pro, in the, in the and it's a, it's a theological discussion and it's going to raise all kinds of issues and I'm going to get into lots of trouble. So I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. So now we normally as believers, we will say, God knows what? Everything. Everything. Okay. Then this sentence doesn't quite need to be said this way. Keep Put your Jewish hats on. God it knows implies, everything. It Why does he need to see these people be stiff-necked? He knows that they're stiff-necked. He's waiting what, to see their choice. He's, yes. And so... And, and it also, we also reflected there was something, uh, I can't remember what chapter it was, REA might be able to help me, it was a couple of weeks ago, 
God also discovers new things. This is the so. That, does it have to be? Does it have to do with um, what is it? Elroy, is it Elroy when he sees Hagar Don't and see. Ishmael? That's right. Then yeah. how do you account for the, the statement that says there's nothing new under the sun? Right, there's nothing new under the sun. That's from uh, Solomon. Okay. And so God, God, God has foreknowledge, but he still watches to see what you do and delights along the way. Like, for example, I pick up an apple and I drop it. What's going to happen? Right, I know that. So there are things that I know, even if I don't see them. I just know. You, you know, I'm going to have, there's, a, there's a, a person whom I don't really like. I'm about to go have a conversation with him. I know I'm not, I'm not going to enjoy this. But then something happens and I discover, actually, I did. Then how can the Lord God know the end from the beginning? Right. Well, he does. And that's where you get the theological on one hand, God knows everything. On the other hand, he also has the delight of discovery. God knows the end from the beginning because he has a counsel and a purpose that he has purposed from the beginning and all of his counsel he will perform. He has not determined deterministically every detail within that framework. He has left individual freedom and had to leave individual freedom because love has to have a free response. It can never have a coerced or a, or a parroted or a puppeted response. So you're saying that the Lord God can be taken by surprise? In fact, he said that he has been taken by surprise. He stated through one of his prophets, I thought that if I did this, they would do this, but look, they've done something else entirely. Yeah. yeah. That's that because at one point literally. before the flood, I repent. I'm sorry, ever made man. It's, it's, it's not something. that a statement in all of Scripture. Yeah. It, it isn't something that we in the church like to even think about because for 2,000 years we've been hammering out the mantra that God knows everything, he's absolutely everywhere, and nothing takes him by surprise. Yet you actually see in the Hebrew text, and that's why you find in Jewish commentaries, this theological discussion. Wow. We, 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 can, be, we can be careful as what Scripture says about what God knows as well. God knows everything that can and is currently knowable. It does not mean that he knows every detail of every occurrence in the future. When we read Psalm 139, it says, if I go here and if I go there, you're there. Yes, God sees and he knows and he has access to his entire creation. He does not know the contingent events of the future depending on the decisions of everyone in creation. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, it, that theology is alive and well in the Jewish tradition to this day. And when you read Jewish commentaries, they're wrestling with, with, with this, that God delights in the journey too. Like, uh, and, and so when you come to Jesus, when he's growing, what is he doing? He's also learning. He's learning wisdom. He's learning grace. He's learning the, the will of the, of the Father. And, uh, and so there's nothing theologically impossible with that happening because in the Hebrew Bible, you've already got it happening. Remember, in, in New Testament, there's nothing actually all that new. Okay. But, but we have verses where it says um, that he knows our prayer even before we speak. He knows our thoughts. 
He knows how many hairs we have in our head. He knows our need before we speak. It doesn't say he knows our prayer before we speak. Yes, actually, Aria is right there. Yeah. Yeah, he knows that he knows the the need. Okay, so the 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 Hebrew here is God has seen says I saw these people and look what I discovered. These people are stiff necked. And then he says, verse 14. Let me alone, because I may destroy them and blot out their name under heaven. Ooh, big tough stuff. And I will make you uh, a nation stronger and more numerous than them. Okay, so God says he's going to destroy the people. So why does he wait? Well, I think he's waiting for Moses' reaction. Yeah, yeah, most likely, yeah. Like, God has said a powerful thing, yeah. (laughs) yeah. Moses needs to go down and check out, you know, the details of what God has just told him. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. So God says, I'm going to wipe these people out, and he's going to make this incredible promise to Moses. And Moses, I'll make you the father of the nations. Okay, it's not going to be the 12 tribes of Israel. It's going to be the 12 tribes of, uh, of Moshe. I mean, think about what Moses is now being offered. And what is Moses going to do about it? So we came pretty close to you not being called Aaron and called Moshe. <laughs> there you go. That's right, yeah. We're going to obliterate Aaron. We're not going to hear from that idiot again. And, uh, and I'll change my name to Moses. Yeah. Turns down the world and quotes scripture. <laughs> but, you, but you said... And this yeah. is what Yeshua does in the desert. Uh, Yeshua is offered the entire world, and he turns it down and quotes scripture. Yeah. He does this in the beginning also. Yeah, Moses does the same. He is offered so much. He has promised absolutely everything. So what is the characteristic of Moses really like? Think about it. He is the meekest man on earth. In yeah. other words, he's the one that believes everything that God says. Uh, he doesn't understand it all, but... Oh. He acts on it as if it is true. Yep. He's got his other character flaws. He's got uh, anger issues, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but and a bit of a murderer, okay? He's got a bit of a, bit of a, bit of a problem there. Um, but yes, when, when given the opportunity to take everything, he prefers to go with God, which is a very, uh, very humble thing. And, and may we all be, be like that. Okay, so... And also to to add to that, yep. Uh, yeah, on because um, that that concept of the theology of um, God is all knowing. At yep. the same time, it's also discovering. Um, I think it's from our own perspective what we the way we view it as if God is discovering. And so the narrative of the scripture is always put in that way. But it doesn't mean that God does not know the end from the beginning. He always knows the end from the beginning. Uh, the, 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 the Bibles make us understand that he came to, to, to ask for um, Adam in the garden. He said, Adam, where are thou? Not because he didn't know where Adam was. Um, in the Torah of Babel, he said, the, the Lord came down to see what this people were up to. Not that he didn't know what they were up to while he was up there, but it, there is a narrative that will be much easier for us to relate to. Um, that is why the Torah is often written in that way. Not um, that he himself doesn't really know, 
um, because he's not trying to um, robot us into a being. We still have our free will, but in our free will, he's, he's still, he's still, he still rules in our free will. He still has his final say in our free will. So he definitely knows the end from the beginning, but the, the narrative is put in our own perspective for us to understand what is going on. Okay, that's one way of looking at it, yeah. Can I, can I just offer a thought? This is not an original thought. It came from A.W. Tozer, if you know who he okay. is. He says yeah. about this yeah. free will and, you know, God, well, is God sovereign and how can man have free will? And he says, only a God who is sovereign can actually offer man complete free will. Any God less than sovereign would not be able to. In other words, yeah. he... Let, a God who had less than sovereign ability over the whole universe would be afraid to give man free will. Yeah, I mean, Tozer's uh, got some very smart things to say. Yeah. yeah. So I can commend uh, his works to anybody who hasn't read uh, Tozer's books uh, and his thinking and his influence on, on large sections of the church and make yeah. there be more. Okay, so in verse uh, 15, so Moses has heard from the Lord that he's going to destroy the people, okay? And, um, and then in terms of timing, perhaps you might have thought, well, maybe I should intercede right now, but he doesn't. He goes down to have a look. And uh, um, he goes down the mountain, and the mountain is ablaze with fire, as it has been since, okay, uh, they time that the people of Israel appeared on the mountain. As soon as they get to the mountain, it, it all starts uh, erupting. So the mountain has been blazing with fire the whole time that uh, the people of Israel have been down there waiting for, for Moses and building their um, cow. So what can we take from that information? Something like this, that a, a nice display of power has changed nothing in the Israelite people. Okay? You've seen all this wonderful power. You're standing next to a mountain that's doing all kinds of really cool stuff, and yet you still engage in idolatry. And so we learn that um, we have to be very careful with power and with miracles. Yeah. They're not as protective as we might like to think. Right. Um, uh, a lot of people can, can see the power of God and still in a bad, bad way. All right. So, and he's taking down the two tablets of the covenant that were in his hands. Now, um, the, the, there's a midrash that the Jewish people have um, about these tablets. How old is Moses when he's doing this? Anyone know? About 120. Yes, okay. So you can imagine this young, sprightly young man uh, leaping down the mountain, holding onto these very um, heavy tablets of rock and uh, wondering how the heck is he doing this? And so there's an interesting midrash where uh, the Jewish people comment on if God actually wrote these words, which he did, it says God wrote these words with the finger of God, then these must be very special words indeed, yes? 
Yes. I mean, it cannot be normal work. This is, this is not ink on parchment. This has to be incredibly special. These are the very words of God, which will then beg the question, why the heck does Moses think he can destroy this stuff? But um, the, 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 the rabbis make a comment that the words are very powerful. The words are not like normal ink. In fact, they're made out of a material that is incredibly precious. It's like gems and, 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 and it's liquid gold and sapphires and diamonds all at once and all moving. And, and the words themselves are rearranging themselves on the rocks, you know, forming new words and new wisdom. And, 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 um, and they also make the stones lighter. They make the, 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 the actual tablets themselves have no weight. Okay, there's a lovely little midrash. Okay, now remember, mm -hmm. what is a midrash? A midrash is a story that's not true that tells a truth. Okay, right today we call those sermons. Um, but the midrash is on if the word of God is, is, can move, the word of God is alive. The word of God is constantly giving you new information. The Word of God is never static and still. The Word of God is incredibly powerful. And, and uh, in this case, the Word of God is sensitive to sin. As Moses comes down the mountain, the Midrash is that these, these words left the stone tablets and they flew back off to heaven. And all that Moses had left was a bunch of empty tablets. The Word of God had fled. And, uh, and then you can quickly leap to the conclusion that the Word of God became flesh. Psalm 29 gives us a nice list of what the Word of God is like. Yeah. You know, it breaks the cedars of Lebanon and it causes the, uh, the deer to give birth. Yeah. yeah. And there's a whole list of things, but yeah, it's, it's powerful. And, yeah. Yep. Powerful stuff. So he's coming down with these tablets that are in his hands, this is the Word of the Lord, and he sees the sin and this idol that these people have made in the shape of a cow, okay, and, um, and in, 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 in the ancient world, uh, gods rode on animals. And so the cow isn't the thing that's actually being worshipped. It's the non-image that's actually on top of the cow uh, that Aaron actually says in plural. He says, behold your gods that brought you out of Egypt. Okay? Um, and uh, Moses notes how quickly that these people had turned aside. And... Um, and so he, he breaks them. Now, why do you think Moses has the right to break the, some of the only things that God has ever written in the entire universe? Think about what Moses has just done. Can I, if I, look, can I say something? And I know you don't always like it, Aaron, but it's from a, a spiritual kind of understanding of that. For me, it just represents the way the first covenant is the Lord is showing that the first covenant is not going to be able to be the one that is going to get you into the promise because they can't keep it for the first second. God gives it and within seconds. It's, um, it's impossible for people to keep. Yep. So the Lord is showing, in a way, it's a picture to me, spiritually a picture, that this covenant will have to be replaced by another covenant because it's just impossible for the people to keep it. Within okay. seconds of God declaring it, they can't keep it. Okay. Yep. Even though their people have been rebellious ever since they left Egypt, they haven't they've just the instant they got out, they've been rebellious. Even before they got the covenant, they were rebellious. So, what do you think gives Moses the right to still destroy something that God wrote? 
Like if you think about that. So if you were given something that God had written, what would you do with it? Treasure it. Yes. I mean, this is, this, technically, there's not much else in the Bible that God has physically written. And the only thing that we actually, the, the, the only thing that we, the thing that we actually do with it is we break the darn thing, okay? uh, which, which says something really bad about the human condition, which is what Vita's also mentioning. We just can't do it. Okay? We get something so precious, so amazing, so wonderful, and yet we, we break it. We're standing next to a mountain full of fire and lightning and, and it's all, you know, Cecil B. DeMille, wonderful stuff, and that still can't keep us in line, right? Nothing seems to keep us in line. Perhaps, Aaron, perhaps Aaron sorry to interrupt. Uh, there might be a, some kind of connection here with the Lord Jesus being in the wilderness as the Word because this was the Word of God on tablets, so the Word endured. So maybe yeah. it had to be broken. Sure, yeah. There are multiple levels of meaning. So Vida, there always has to be a spiritual meaning. It just has to, right? <laughs> also throw into the mix here, what is, um, what's the job of Moses at this point in time? What's the title we would give him? What's Say that again. With, what's he doing with God and the people? Yeah, that's interesting because Moses is supposed to be a God to the people, to Aaron. Okay. Gotcha. Let's start I think Lynn, your the, yeah, I just, I just, I just, uh, the sound uh, system is okay. Oh uh, yeah. So let's start over. What, what is uh, Zoom is is all your background noise. Like if you're doing the dishes, try not to keep Zoom anywhere near us. <laughs> Go for it, Roddy. <laughs> okay, I'm just trying to bring up that that Moses is a mediator at this point in time. The the Hebrew word. Uh, Shaliak is uh, it's not the pool of Siloam, it's the pool of Shaliak, Shaloak. Sent one, yeah. Yeah, it's got it's got three meanings though. And when you take away the Hebrew word, you lose the meaning and the attention. And, and what is Yeshua? He's salvation, he's an intermediary, a mediator, um, and he's a third thing. And in this particular instance, this is what Moshe, Moshe Moses is doing. He's an intermediary, he's in between God and the people. Yep. Because but it, it, of what they've done, he yeah. is in a position and has the authority to go, you have broken this, and I'm not going to let you have access to God. Yes, because, because uh, it was the Lord God said to Moses, you'll be as God to Aaron and the people. Uh, yes, and here God is saying, these are your people. Yep. Right? He's, he's put, he's put this, they're not mine. I didn't do any of this. It's your fault. You'll go down. You talk to them. Um, and, so, and, and it's interesting that, that Moses is going to flip it when he, when he does his prayer. And I say, well, actually, they're, they're kind of yours, mate. Um, now, also note that in Exodus, Exodus doesn't mention the fasting. Okay, when you actually read Exodus and the narrative of um, uh, the Ten Commandments, and there's a whole bunch of other commandments, and you get to the, the, the sin of the golden cow right at the end in Exodus 32, um, there's no mention of the fasting. It's interesting that in this case, Moses brings it up. 
Okay. And, uh, and so why is Moses bringing in this idea of intercessory prayer, which we haven't seen in Exodus, but he deliberately wants his people to know, you know, this is a, this is a pattern. This is a formula. This is something you should do. And, uh, and look what, and it took me 40, 40 days to, to sort this out. It wasn't an instantaneous prayer where I just said, Lord, you're merciful, be merciful. Amen. This was a, quite a long, long um, uh, intercession. And, it has, and it's not mentioned in Exodus, but it is mentioned here. So it's important. It's important enough for Moses to, to add it in. Right, we got to go back to the point, which is he's three things like Yeshua. Yes. He's the intermediary. He is the sent one. He is the anointed one. And the Hebrew word shaliach, shaliach, means these three things. Therefore, he has the authority to do this at that point in time. Mm-hmm. That was the original question. Well, no, can he do this? He can because he has the authority to do it because of his position as the intermediary, the person who's the mediator at that point in time. And what is he, what is he, um, uh, in verse, verse 18, let's read that one and then I'll ask the next question. So then once again, I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, this is a long thing. He eats no bread and he drinks no water. And again, he's sustained uh, uh, by God um, and maybe even, even angels. Why? Because of the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so arousing his anger. Okay, so people have sinned in the Lord's sight. So according to Exodus, Leviticus, and and Numbers, what should we do? Teshuvah. We could do Teshuvah. Okay, but what else? What's the big thing that everybody says Judaism's always doing and they can't do right now? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. What does Moses not give? Sacrifice. There's no sacrifice here. Right, um, which is also a very powerful thing. He's interceding with prayer. Okay? He's not going to say, "All right, guys, let's um, let's kill those cows. You made a cow. Let's kill a thousand cows. That's going to make God happy." Okay? Um, and I, that's right. That's right. Ivan, I, I owe you a, um, a discussion on a couple of chapters of Leviticus. I did get yeah, I did get, yeah, I did get your WhatsApp, and I've had a little look at it and I think, but I haven't um had the time to reply but i will okay great okay. so here here we find moses interceding for the sins of others uh, and there's no sacrifice involved which is an interesting and very powerful point uh, samson um aaron yes um if we look at the, the narrative in um, exodus 32 exodus 32 Aaron, after building the altar for the golden calf, he, he, he made a statement. He said, Tomorrow the Eva here, he said, And in order if you read verse 5, you'll see that there. in the Hebrew, he referred to Adonai. And so even in the English, it's um, Lord in the capital. And uh, if we look at that, that means this, um, even though they were building the golden calf, they were still trying to refer to the Lord. In other words, they were trying to replace Moses from the narrative of Exodus 32, saying that of this man, Moses, we don't know what has happened to him. So let us build us a calf, build us a God to go before us because Moses was the God that was going before them. 
Mm-hmm. And now they wanted to replace Moses because they don't have um, another intermediary as they, they had with Moses. Wow. So they're trying to build an intermediary. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. And it's interesting that who's saying this? It's Aaron, the high priest. Okay. And now uh, this is Aaron. Yeah, they are on the high priests. And yeah. they were saying that tomorrow is the feast to Adonai and they were going to do that for, um, for this golden calf. Yeah, yeah. So here we find our, our high priest not doing his job. <laughs> okay, um, unfortunately. And uh, yeah, so we, let's keep going on, on, our, on our text here. So Moses has fallen prostate. He's going to intercede. Uh, for the people, for their sins, and he's not going to use a sacrifice in any form. So he's going to use prayer. And in 19, it gives us a little, uh, a little hint of, of, of his emotions. He fears the anger and the wrath of the Lord, that he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. And in the Septuagint, it decides to take that word fear and make it even stronger. The Septuagint, when it translates it, comes out and says, he was exceedingly frightened. He was stricken with terror that God was actually going to kill uh, all the people. And, uh, and then he also prays for his, his brother Aaron in verse 20. Uh, the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. Um, and he prayed for him as well, uh, even though our little friend Aaron has been failing at his duties. And uh, um, so we have a priest who's failing at his duties, and Moses prays for him. What should we do? Who should we pray for? Okay, it's very easy for us to look at pastors and say, don't like their sermons. You know, I don't really like them very much at all, actually. Um, and, and, and our response should be the same as Moses's. We should engage in, in prayer. We should pray for them. We should intercede for them. We should uh, bring them before the Lord, even if they are failing in their duties, because we really want them to succeed in their duties. We really want our pastors and our shepherds to be good shepherds. So we should... Consider that one of our one of our prayers. Aaron, I have a quick question. Um, and it's very interesting the whole idea, the concept of intercession. So there was no sacrifice, there was no blood. It was a prayer, and I just was thinking um, as you were t- talking about that in Exodus twenty-four, before they had even sinned, he had already taken a burnt offering, and then you know all that you say will be obedient. We're going to obey, blah blah blah. But then he takes the blood and throws it on the people. And he says, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made in accordance with all these words. So in a sense, there was a covering of the blood. And later, they've been covered by this blood. Later, there's the intercession, no sacrifice. But then prior to that in Exodus, there was that covering of the blood. Just kind of interesting. What are your thoughts about that? Um, Great question. Um, sacrifices, uh, I've learned a lot of things about sacrifices. I mean, they're very important to God, otherwise he wouldn't have said them. Um, 
uh, too often we consider them just foreshadows. They're that too, but they're also important. Uh, God is not utilitarian. He doesn't just use something once for the sake of having to, to use it. Um, sacrifices even appeared in the Garden of Eden. I'm not even 100% sure why they would do such a thing. Um, and so they, they have some sort of... Uh, uh, they have some sort of power and function. Uh, yeah, the burnt offering, they get covered in blood. It's an incredibly good symbol for later on, the whole idea of, of what we're covered in. And, um, and they have meanings for Jewish people. Yet, when we studied the book of Acts, that was never anything that is argued by Peter or Paul. Peter and Paul constantly refer to people to repent. They, 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 they never dwell on sacrifices or they don't, they don't mention the term, the blood of Jesus covers you. What they say is, we have the Messiah, he's risen from the dead, it proves the resurrection, and, uh, and now repent and you'll get forgiveness of sins. Not only that, you're going to get the Holy Spirit. So somewhere along the line, all of that it meshes together. How? I don't have a good answer for you right now, other than to say, it's something very powerful, particularly when Moses puts the blood on them and says, now no, you're still the blood. So it's also very powerful. Add this into the mix. If we go and look at every covenant from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to a marriage covenant and to the new covenant, the Brit Hadashah. It's got blood. How yep. does God ratify? How yep. does he seal the covenant? Yep. A blood covering. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When you're a little kid and you're in the woods and you take the knife and you cut your fingers and you put your two fingers together in agreement forever. It's a it's ratification of the agreement. Yeah. It's spoken by a true lawyer, Roddy. True lawyer. Thank you, man. Appreciate that. But it's true. It is true. All covenants are sealed in blood. Spoken by who, Aaron? I'm sorry, I missed that. Roddy's a lawyer. So if you ever, oh. <laughs> that's why he's blackened his face and you can't actually see him right now. Okay, right. Very, particular, very careful. All right. All right. So, um, so Moses is interceding, intercedes for the people, intercedes for uh, his brother, a priest, and um, and prays, and then he also does some actions. He takes the actual thing that's wrong, right, and we break it apart. Okay, we destroy it. The, the calf that they made, he burns it in fire and melts it down. And uh, come to an interesting verse. So maybe Aria can have a comment on this one. He crushes it into powder and he throws it into this stream that flows out the mountain, this brook. Um, have we ever heard of this brook before, Aria? Has this ever appeared in, the, in, in Exodus? Not that I know of. Nope. <laughs> you know, it's a new piece of information that Moses just thrown in there. Because um, well, it, it, it is in um, at, it is in Exodus thirty-two. Is it? In fact, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll I'll read the verse from Excellent. it because uh, I want it. There's a, one extra piece of information in the Exodus account. So this is Exodus thirty-two, um, uh, verse twenty. Is this where they drink it? He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water. Okay, it just says water rather than stream and made the people of Israel drink it. Now, it's that last phrase I want to uh, just shed a thought on and I'll try and do this as delicately as possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So he forces the people to drink this mixture, which contains very finely ground metal and possibly ground up wood and water. And so that goes into their system and the water is excreted in a normal way. But the metal, the ground metal is not absorbed into the body. It comes out the other way. And it's as if the Lord wants, he wants not only this thing to be completely destroyed, he wants an object lesson to the people so they actually understand that what they have done is so disgusting. In other words, it's the thing that if you tread on it, you really want to clean your feet off. In other words, it's, yeah. it's excrement on the ground is yeah. about the only thing that God could consider this thing ground up and to become. That's right. The proverbial you walk away from it every time. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, Aaron, Aaron, say that again? The proverbial has indeed hit the fan. Yes. And it, it's a... <laughs> It's a memorial for the people that this is really God's estimation of what they did. And you, ha you just have to walk away from it. Just yeah. do not go near. Don't even go looking for it. So in the Exodus account, we get the grinding up and the drinking of it, which is not retold in the Deuteronomy bit. Um, and in Exodus, you get this water, but it doesn't tell you where the water's from. Okay. In, in Deuteronomy, it apparently appears from this mountain that there was this um, uh, stream that flowed out from the mountain of God. Have we ever heard of streams flowing from the mountains of God before? Yes, Genesis. Uh, Zechariah. Yeah, that's right. There is. Two directions. Correct. There's, um, it has the, there is this image that we do appear in the prophets and in creation that, um, that somehow from the center of the universe or from wherever God is, then this water flows out, this special water, living water. Uh, and in this case, um, it gets mixed with, um, with idolatry and then, and then drunk. In Ezekiel, you'll have the uh, spring that will flow to <laughs> That's the... Right. Uh, the oh. western or the, yeah. the southernmost lake to the big sea, yeah. and it'll bring the dead to life. To life, yeah. That's always a nice prophecy. Yeah. Aaron, let me just chip this in here. Um, if we look at the event of the aftermath of the golden calf, when um, um, Moses made them grind the powder and um, grind the calf and pour the, water, pour the ashes in the water for them to drink. And if you go to Numbers 5 and you read the, the law of the jealousy, the law of the spirit of jealousy of the husband, you realize there that it is the same um, play yes, that was just... Yes, drink something and it works out whether she's guilty or not. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the, 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 the covenant, the blood covenant that was mentioned at first concerning the ratification of the covenant was actually a marriage covenant of Israel and the Lord. And because they went into idolatry and broke the covenant. So when Moses saw, if the word that was used in, um, in Exodus 32 is that when Moses saw that Aaron has made them naked. And if you read in, um, in Numbers 5, it says that the priest shall lose the hair of the woman and shall put the offering in her hand and make her to make those recitation. And at the end of the day, we make her to drink the water. It's just the um, replica of the spirit of jealousy. And so the Lord was executing judgment upon Israel because they have gone 
apostate. And if you see at the end, we had 3,000 people that fell because oh. of that um, sin of the golden calf. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, which Moses doesn't mention here. He doesn't mention the, that, that, the, that death um, in, in, in this retelling. Yes, yeah, yeah, he doesn't mention it here. doesn't mention it. Um, but he does mention two other parts, other parts of the rebellion in verse uh, 22. He says, now, you know, in terms of our national memory, let's remember the golden cow and uh, what happened and how I even broke these very precious things that God had made. Um, and then he says in verse 22, you've made God angry in other times too. Now let's all remember them. And he starts to list them off. Okay, uh, Taberah, which is in Numbers 11, that's where um, it just says that Israel complained and, uh, and they com complained a lot. And, uh, and then um, and Moses and God had said, okay, I'm done with these people. They're always whining and complaining. Um, and Moses intercedes for the people. He does it there in Numbers 11. What's interesting is Moses does the intercession, not our high priest. You know, you start to wonder what the heck is this high priest for? Okay? Um, we've got one, doesn't even do nothing. Um, and then at Massah, that's uh, 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 Exodus 17, where um, they are complaining about water from the rock. You know, here we are in the desert, we've got no water, and so Moses has to do the whole water from the rock thing. And it's constant complaining. And then um, uh, Krivot, Chak uh, Avar, the graves, uh, the Krivot, the, the graves of, of craving. This is where um, in Numbers 11, 13, and 14, you get uh, Israel fed up with manna, right? It actually gives a description of what manna tastes like in, in those chapters, okay? It, tell, it, tell, it tells you its consistency, tells you what it tastes like, it even tells you what they did with it, what they cooked uh, with it. Um, but they demand meat. And so what does God give them? More well, they can, they can eat. Quails. And he said, and not only that, I'm going to give you so much of it, it's going to turn sour in your mouth and it's going to become a plague, right? You know, um, so you get, you get it, but they got too much of it, and, uh, which is a very interesting uh, thought as well. And so, um, so, so Moses very quickly rattles off without dwelling on them, without giving big in introductions or, 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 or speeches like he's done with righteousness or what he's done with Exodus or what he's done with the golden cow. Here he just says, look, these aren't the only times you've uh, made the Lord angry. Okay, you've done it before. And, uh, and then he brings in the spies. And when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh Barnea, go and take possession of the land. Okay? But you rebelled against the command of the Lord. You didn't trust or obey him. Uh, and this sort of idea that um, uh, the, the ten spies had gone in and they had seen the giants. In fact, they, 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 the word they use is Nephilim. Uh, here, here we're talking about the Anakim, the giants, but back there we're talking about Nephilim, a bit more, a bit more of an angelic idea. Uh, uh, in verse 24, Moses says, You've been a rebellious people against the Lord ever since I've known you. Okay? And I knew you when you was in Egypt, and you weren't all that, that, great, that hot back then. Despite all this rebellion, you would think Moses would take the opportunity to say, oh, and by the way, he's going to wipe you out and uh, start with me. So good luck, fellas. Uh, enjoy your death. Um, instead, he begins his intercessions. He is prostate. You get, you get this idea that... Um, 
you know, he's fallen before the Lord. He's remaining still. He's not moving around. Um, uh, 40 days, 40 nights. Why? Why is he doing this? Because the Lord said he was going to kill you. But what has the Lord not done? He hasn't killed them. Yeah. Right? Which, you know, if, if God said, I'm going to kill you, and then 40 days later, like, well, we're waiting. Um, okay? The, the, the time, it, God's justice wasn't swift. He was waiting for intercession. And you see this, this theme of God's long-suffering. It's in through the prophets. It's in, uh, it's in the New Testament, the sort of idea that God... No, he waits long for, for people to repent. He waits long for someone to come and intercede for the people. He waits long for the, the, the mediator. Okay. Um, in, here's 26. I prayed. Okay. We, get, we, we actually get a prayer that uh, Moses says. You, you don't find the prayer recorded in Exodus. Okay. In Exodus, it's just a talk. Moses talks to, to God, like just talking. Here, Moses says, you know, I actually was in prayer. And how does he start with? What's, what, are, what are some of the aspects of this prayer? He fell down on his face. Okay, yeah, there's a bit of that. What does he say? He says, Sovereign Lord. Oh, Lord God, yes. Lord God, okay. So God is a king. God is powerful. God is in total control. One, one aspect of when, you, when we're praying to the Lord. Don't destroy your people, your own inheritance mm. that you redeemed by your great power and you brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. So what is that prayer? What, what are the aspects of that prayer? Confirming the greatness of God and the humbleness of the person, surely. Yes, that's the start. Because absolutely. He's humble, he's prostrate, and he acknowledges you're the sovereign. Okay. Uh, God has told him, Moses, your people have been angry and done, uh, your people have been rebellious. What's Moses now returning the, the retort? No, Lord, they're your people. Okay. Yep. Uh, God, God has said, these are the people you brought out of Egypt. Moses is like, no, I didn't do nothing. You brought them out of Egypt. But look at what Moses is saying. He's In his prayer, he's saying things that God has done. Right? So he's remembering. Really, sorry? He's remembering. He's remembering. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of those questions, in, or it was one of those things. In our songs, in our worship, in a lot of our liturgies and our prayers, what are they? They're things about what God has done. I mean, I mean how else can you praise God if he hasn't done something? Right? And, and so God, even God's initial sentence when he, when he introduces himself to the people of Israel says, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. Right? I did something. And here you have Moses praying about things God has done. These are your people. These are your inheritance. You brought them out. It's by your power and it's your outstretched arm. And uh, so it is a good model for us to, when we do our prayers. And then, and then, again, memory. Now, what's Moses doing in 27? Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of these people, their wickedness and their sin. 
He's reminded of the covenant, the promise, because the Lord God stays to his word. Right. And, and it's not that Moses is saying, remember, Lord, because, my gosh, you forgot. I mean, what were you doing up there all this time? You know? I know it's been quite a while since Abraham, but don't forget that guy. Because memory, as we've been saying this, this whole book, or every time we've had a Bible study almost for the last couple of years, memory has nothing to do with forgetting. Right? But it's like the Pharisees in the day of Jesus. They say we are children of Abraham because they, it's here. It's because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob. Ignore the people because they rebellious, but because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the Pharisees are saying, but we are children of Abraham, so we fine. You know, because of that promise. Yep. And Paul in Romans says the Jewish people are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Yep. Yep. And so he's, he reminds him, remember is it, is, it, is it when you remember, you put into practice. Do this to remember me. And so in, in part of intercession, remember your, your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So don't forget. Don't put into practice your promise to them. Overlook the stubbornness of these people. Yes, God's absolutely correct. Okay, We've got a stiff-necked people, been rebellious since we came out of our mother's wombs. But, um, but you've made a promise, Lord, so keep to it. And, uh, and then he, he says a very, so overlook their wickedness and their sin. So overlook their sin. Again, no mention of sacrifice, no mention of, 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 of covenants even, okay? although covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are there. Um, in verse 28, we get otherwise. Okay, Everyone can, can say some comments to this. The country which you brought out, okay, so Egypt, will say, ha-ha, because the Lord was unable to take them into the land he promised and because he hated them, he brought them out and just put them to death in the wilderness. Okay, sorry. What's going on there, Neville? Yeah, well, this, I find, a really powerful argument. He's appealing to not only his reputation, that, you know, what the Lord sets out to do, he can actually achieve. In other words... He knew what he was doing all along, and he knew the nature of the people he was working with, and yet he would never fail to succeed in the objective, but also fail, he would never fail to keep his covenant with uh, the forefathers, with Abraham. And the, the way I like to apply this is just, you know, looking back over the history of the church, it, it's been pretty shambolic in times, as well as there have been great, some great times of revival but someone could stand shouting from the sides and say you know god can pull these people out of the world but can he lead them into the fullness of his inheritance and the answer is yes he can yeah absolutely he can yep and and this prayer that moses is praying is all based on solid reasons not airy fairy um, you know, you're a God of love and you're a God of mercy, so just be nice. Okay, this is solid reasons. You've made promises. You're the great God. Other people are going to make fun of your name. You know, you have power and an outstretched arm. Keep doing what you said you were going to do. Um, and, and I think that would be a very powerful aspect of our prayers, uh, to, to, to base our prayers in, in, in solid things that God has done and, uh, and his firm promises. Aaron, sorry to interrupt again. Uh, looking through this whole chapter, especially these last f verses, there seems to be something also deeper, deeper here concerning relationship. 
It's as though the Lord God is saying, come on, I know what's going to happen. What are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? Mm-hmm. It's as though he's trying to draw him closer in to, to share in the, in the relationship. Is that possible? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I really like looking at these prayers because these prayers, I mean, this is coming from the heart of Moses. This is Moses. You know, he's got 40 days to, to really deeply work out what he's going to say to God. And it's packed with theology. Right? It's packed with, uh, uh, yeah, he could have said a lot of things to the Lord, but, but what he says here is, is very powerful. And his final sentence is, a, 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 again, I think it's a very powerful way that Moses talks to, to God. He's in a very deep relationship with God. God had told him, oh, these are your people, Moses, and they're stiff-necked and I was going to wipe them out. And at the end, he, he says, you know, you could have, you could have started with me. I understand, all, I understand the promise you, you made me, but these are your people, right? This is your inheritance. The, the land's an inheritance, but these people are your inheritance, and you can't do that. And uh, that you brought out with your great power and your outstretched arm. You, know, you bought these people. Yeah, they're a mess, but you paid a lot for this. And, you know, God's, God's you know, name is on the line here. So it's, you know, it, uh, it has to be true, uh, which I think is a very powerful thing. And, and, and we see it time and time again. And for those that um, look at the modern state of Israel and say, look at what God is doing, isn't it wonderful? We, we understand where Moses is coming from. Uh, but there will be many who will go, no, you know, they will, they will go back to the original thing that, that God said to Moses on the mountain. I'm done with these people. Okay? I'm starting again with the new people. I'm going to call them the church. You know? and, uh, and we're done with the Jews. Um, and, and that would be an, an inappropriate way to look. I think, uh, I think uh, Moses is a, he's got it right again here. It's a very powerful prayer. That, uh, that yes, particularly appealing to the name of God and his reputation. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, and it comes through in Ezekiel as well, where the Lord says in, in chapters 36 and 37, I'm not doing this because you're righteous, but for my own name's sake, I am bringing you back to the land. Yes, which is the, yeah, exactly the state that they're in. So yeah. when we pray, guys, we can pray of, of God's past faithfulness and we can pray on his past oaths and uh, and the, and the faith that he has given to the, to the patriarchs. And because of his great name, because of the glory that he wants to show himself to the nations. And we can also pray, right, because we are his people. Like that Moses says at the end, these are your people. We are his people. And, um, and, and, and so despite all this sin, despite this constant rebellion, despite the fact that when we came out of our mother's womb, we're rebellious, you know, uh, God has a great plan for us and a great future and a great hope. And uh, we have to be, make sure that uh, we remember that. And, uh, and that memory, I hope, will affect our present and, uh, and, and lead us into a great future. Okay. Any other questions or comments there on uh, 9? Because uh, once, once we get into 10 and on, um, we now start getting into um, the sort of retelling of the Torah, except that it's not the whole thing. And um, you start, start, uh, start looking a little bit more in depth in what is Moses 
missing out? Why does he change some words and, uh, and what's he putting in? Um, particularly uh, uh, in, in relation to the tabernacle. Because okay? um, he could have just regurgitated everything that was in Leviticus, but he doesn't. So we'll see why, why we, well, maybe we'll see why he does that. Uh, any other comments on um, memory or our chapter 9? Yeah, just, um, just, to add there, just to add there on the prayer of Moses. Uh, Moses took his time to elaborate his prayers, the time he spent for the prayers, so that the people can understand the gravity of what they've done. Um, it might not be there in the future, but this is how they need to get out of that kind of situation. Because if God has just forgiven them and they just set out and they don't know what has transpired to make sure that they are back on the good books, then they just think it's, a, it's, it's just it's that easy. And so Moses took that time to elaborate on it. Yes, because he's already said, so we've done chapters 1 to 9, you're going to go in. You're going to conquer the land. You're going to win, and then you're going to forget God. And you, just as rebellious, and, and it's going to have consequences, and God's going to, you know, drive you out. He's going to destroy. He's going, it's going to be some bad suffering. But what's the pattern that Moses is setting up? Yeah. The pattern the, of Teshuvah. Teshuvah. Prostate yourself before the Lord. Remind God of, the, of, of his promises. And, uh, and what are they not involving? Not involving a, a sacrifice. That's already happened, as Yvonne said, right? You know, we've, we've done that bit too. And, uh, and so, yeah, Moses is setting up a really good pattern for the people of Israel. Remember, remember the redemption. Remember your exodus. Remember it's not your righteousness. And remember your sins. Now get on your knees. Right? It's a very interesting thing that Moses is doing. Yeah, I like the point that Samson made that about grace. Grace is undeserved and it's free, but it certainly isn't cheap. <laughs> That's correct. That's a good line. Yeah. 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 Might add that last bit into the next week's notes. All right, guys. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.